So the book of Ephesians uh, was written by Paul to the Gentile churches in and around the uh, city of Ephesus. In the Bible times, there were two types of people, um, according to the Jews. There were Jews, and then there were non-Jews, known as Gentiles. Uh, Jews could be saved, Gentiles couldn't. It was a pretty, um, pretty definite distinction. Paul himself was a Jew, a former Pharisee. Uh, Pharisees were the ones that held the law in the highest regard and tried to follow it as much as possible. Um, and he'd been taught perfectly in all the laws and the commandments of God and the Pharisees. The book of Ephesians is split into two parts. Um, the first three chapters talk about how God has made a way for the Gentiles to be saved, along with the Jews, and how awesome and incredible that is. The last three chapters contain instruction and warning against the things of the world, which come naturally to the Gentiles, so do us, and the things of God, which don't come naturally to the Gentiles. This epistle was written directly to the Gentile, to yep, Gentile churches, so it contains instructions on things that mostly pertain to the Gentiles in the way that, that we Gentiles think and have been brought up. And we see evidence of every single issue in people around us today that don't follow God. The Jews had the law of God already from generation to generation, so they had a good idea of what was acceptable to God and what wasn't. And transferring those concepts to the church was easy for the Jews. But the Gentiles had to be taught from scratch. And so this book contains um, some instructions, particularly for the non-Jews, um, on how we should be living. And that's why Paul spent a lot of time and detail into instructing these Gentiles in the ways of God and, by extension, us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, where we started last week, starts getting into the practical side of Paul's teaching. But the fine detail, and, and it talks about how, how the old man is, is gone, we should be putting off the old man and be putting on the new man and walking in the ways of God. But the fine detail starts in Ephesians 4 and verse 25, where we're going to pick everything up this morning. Remember that these things are what the Gentiles, including us, are particularly prone to. The Jews didn't need to hear this teaching so much because of the law of Moses that they are taught to follow from their youth up. So let's start, Ephesians 4 and verse 25. So that was just a brief recap. Wherefore, so based on everything that I've talked about before, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. God is truth. There are more than enough verses that say that in the Bible. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, God forbid, let, yea, let God be true, and, but every man a liar. As it is written, thou might, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So God is true, but men are liars. First John 5 and 20 says, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John chapter 7 verse 28 says, Then cried Jesus in the temple as he, as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. So God is true, God is truth. And the, the Bible is very, um, very open and 
uh, and definite that Satan is a liar as well. John chapter 8 and verse 44 says, I was talking to the Pharisees, um, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So we have two complete polar opposites. When the Bible says that we should put away lying, we should be following and imitating Jesus, not Satan. When we lie, we're imitating Satan and we're doing the things that are against God and against his truth. Lying hurts both the other people in the church and also God himself. The church can't function properly if people in the church are lying to each other. If we can't respect each other enough to tell the truth to each other, how are we going to be able to reach this lost and dying world? And how could a sinner come to church and feel the love of God if everybody is lying to each other? They might as well go to a club or worldly association for all the positive effect or impact that that sort of church would have on them. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about us all being members of the body of Christ and makes comparisons between church members and parts of a physical human body. In the same way, if a part of a human body lies to the rest of the body, then it is dysfunctional and the body can't function properly. For example, if a leg lies to the rest of the body that is about to start walking, and the rest of the body compensates for that expected motion, then the body will fall flat on its face because it will start to lean forward in expectation of the leg starting to move forward as well. And that's if just one member lies to the rest of the body. Imagine the chaos if every member lied to each other. There will be literally no unity, no cohesive motion in any direction whatsoever. The body will be completely disabled and just flop around on the floor. It's the same for the church body as well. It would not be possible for the body to give glory to Jesus Christ at all if there is um, a, an atmosphere of lying to each other. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Yes, it is possible to be angry and not to be sinning at the same time. There is a godly anger that we can have. The Bible um, talks about Jesus being angry. Jesus got angry with the Pharisees when there was a man with a withered hand in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were, were looking to see whether Jesus was going to heal him so they could pounce on him. And so Jesus asked them a question. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says, And when he, Jesus, had looked round about on them with anger being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Jesus still did the work that he was going to do, but he was angry with the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. We know that Jesus never sinned, yet he got angry sometimes. And although the Bible never officially states it, it's hard to believe that Jesus wouldn't have been angry when he cast out the merchants in the temple. John chapter 2 and verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting, 
And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence and make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus got angry at that time with people not following the word of God and not respecting the house of God. Every time that Jesus got angry, it was always for a good and a righteous reason. It never became sin at any stage. And this is what we should aspire to. If you find yourself being angry over the same or similar things for days on end, even if it is a good and a righteous anger, you're not walking in the Spirit. That's just the plain truth of it. As a child of God, our anger should disappear before we put our heads on our pillows at night. And if our anger isn't abated before bedtime, we should be praying to God about it before we go to sleep. Ephesians 4.26 is a parallel verse to Psalms chapter 4 and verse 4, which says, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Salah. The word awe in the Hebrew is ragaz, which means to tremble either from fear or anger. And so, and so much so that the revised version translates this word as anger, i.e. stand in anger and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Keeping to this time limit that the Bible talks about, um, let not the sun go down upon your wrath and commune with your heart upon your bed and be still, stops a godly anger from becoming sin. If you keep what was even a godly anger bottled up inside for days, then it will eventually turn into bitterness, which is always destructive and is always a sin. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. This verse is still talking, it's continuing the flow, it's still talking about being angry and not sinning. Those who allow anger to get a hold of them give the devil an opportunity to destroy them. Paul usually used the Greek word satanus for Satan, but he used the Greek word diabolos instead, which means slanderer or accuser. When you are controlled by anger, you fall under the condemnation of the slanderer and the accuser of our souls. And Satan will try to use that to destroy you completely and anyone around you because you're not walking in the spirit, because you're just walking your own kind of ways. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Paul now adds stealing to the list of lying and anger of things that we Gentiles need to guard against. When people steal, they almost always do it as a selfish act to get themselves their own gain or advantage. That's why the story of Robin Hood the lovable rogue who steals from the rich to give to the poor will always remain just like that, just a story, a work of fiction. That's because people who steal, steal for their own gain and not by any sense of misguided charity. So Paul's admonition tells the saint to work rather than steal, which is the way that God wants it and requires it for us. But more than that, there should be a looking outward. There should be a looking further as well so that we can help people in their time of need. There's a huge contrast in attitude in this verse 
from stealing for selfish reasons to working for selfless reasons so that others can be blessed. Rather than just say, stop stealing because it's a sin, God is calling for a complete change of heart, a replacement of the old selfish way, the old man, with a new way of looking out for others, the new man. This is more than just a commandment. This is a new way of life and completely changed underlying motives. We should not expect nothing less from a walk with God. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that, it, that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Corrupt communication could include words of deceit, rage, harshness, insult, obscenity, swear words, blasphemy, and the list goes on. Once again, the focus is not just on don't say bad words because they are sin, but the focus is on saying good words so that other people can be uplifted, exhorted, and encouraged. The focus shouldn't be on guiding our tongues just in case a bad word comes out, but the focus should be on always saying good words so we can help and we can uplift people in the church. There's a complete shift in the way that we should be thinking. The carnal, the natural man just wants to do what it, whatever it wants. It wants to cut down. It wants to, to make other people feel miserable, especially if we're feeling miserable. But the way God calls us to, the way we should be in the church, the way that we are walking in the Spirit is when we uplift and we strengthen others and not just think about ourselves. Ephesians 4.30 And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This verse is really a continuation of verse 29. Corrupt communications grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because all the types of corrupt communication tear down other people or belittle God. And our relationship with others in the church or the community reflects on God himself as we are his ambassadors. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. So the Bible itself says that we're ambassadors. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone that speaks for someone or someone, something else, usually on behalf of a country or a nation. And they speak with the full authority of that country or nation. When an ambassador speaks, it is as though the ruler of that country or nation has themselves spoken. And they are trusted to give the right words, to give exactly what they have been told to the, the other people that they've been told to speak to. So if all that is coming out of our mouths is cursing or anger or hate or insult, then that is how we are portraying Jesus to the church and to this world. This false image of God that we portray grieves him greatly. And we start to pick away at that seal that God has placed on our lives. If we continue down that path, the seal will be broken and we will miss out on his redemption in the end. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. These are six sins that come from carnal tempers and tongues that haven't been properly restrained and put under the blood of Jesus Christ. 
The Greek word pikria is translated as bitterness here, means prolonged resentment or a slow-working deadly poison. It's pretty much the same thing. Prolonged resentment is a slow-working deadly poison. The Greek word thumos, translated as wrath here, means explosive anger or extreme passion. The Greek word orge, translated as anger, means habitual anger or longed-for revenge. We've already gone through that anger on its own isn't sin, but uncontrolled anger or anger nursed as a grudge, they're both sinful. The word clamor means loud, insistent speech and commonly includes insults and mocking of others. The Greek word blasphemia is translated as evil speaking here, means to speak of evil of other people and should never be connected to a child of God. The word malice means hard feelings towards others and negatively impacts the unity of the spirit in the church. God desires, God expects us not to have these things in our lives. And more than that, he expects us to replace it with the things in verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Once again, God takes away the bad and replaces it with good. God will never take something away from you without replacing it with something way better. The Greek word, uh, um, translated as tender-hearted here, is also used in 1 Peter 3.8, where it is translated there as having compassion. So God is calling us to restrain our tempers and tongues, but more than that, to be kind, to have compassion, to forgive one another. We should always be mindful in this of just how much that God has actually forgiven us all. He's forgiven us way more than our brothers and sisters in Christ could even begin to hurt us. And yes, sometimes we get hurt and hurt deeply, but God has forgiven us of so much more. The Greek word charismai, translated as forgiving and forgiven here, means to forgive a debt. Your brothers and sisters might owe you a debt. They might have done something wrong by you, but it pales into insignificance with the debt that we owe God and that he has already forgiven us all. Just as God has forgiven us our massive debt, he expects us to forgive and release the debts that other people in the church owe us, whether they realize they have a debt or not. Going on into the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 5 and starting from verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. So, by, by taking away all of these sins that we've just talked about, we become followers of God when we walk in the ways that God has called us to, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. I want to use these two verses as a platform for remembering Christ's incredible sacrifice for us on the cross at the communion table. Brother Moses and Brother Steve, if you would help out with that, please. Jesus showed his ultimate love by giving his life for us. 
In John chapter 15 and verse 12, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Jesus has called us to be his friends and his children by and children of God by giving his life for us. And the Bible calls it a sweet smelling savour. It was something that was pleasing and fit for the purpose, just like a sweet perfume to the nostrils of God. The death of Jesus on the cross meant that he paid the debt for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And who are we in the scheme of things? Who are we? We're nothing. We're less than nothing. We're just sinners. We're just your average, run-of-the-mill sinners that have had the incredible mercy and grace of God bestowed on us. And some of us may have been above average sinners, if we really think about it. (laughs) And we needed even more the grace of God in our lives. But God saw fit to make a way of salvation for us. (laughs) That's just something incredible. We've already seen just how awesome it is that God made a way for us Gentiles to be saved. We've looked over the earlier um, teaching in the book of Ephesians, and we just saw how awesome it was. But the death of Jesus on that old rugged cross is something beyond description or imagination. He was the only one who has ever lived on this earth that has never sinned. And we know that he's not just a man but he's fully God and fully man. But he came for that purpose. He was the only one that deserved eternal life. (laughs) But his mission, his purpose, was to selflessly die so that every single person could have a chance to live again, as God originally planned for men to live. You know, we were designed to live forever, originally, before sin came in the Garden of Eden. And this is the way that God brings back that eternal life to us. He won't be on this earth. Yeah, we'll all die most probably um, if the Lord doesn't come back. Um, And he's coming back really soon. Keep saying that. But we're just flesh. We're just... um, We're just going to die, and we don't know just how long we've got on this earth. But God has promised eternal life for those who follow and serve Him. A life freed from from sin and a life living above sin is what Jesus offers us now. Walking with God in His love and with love for His people and this lost and dying world. To remember and commemorate the death of Jesus and all he has done for us, Jesus himself set up what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion, as found in Matthew 26, starting at 26 to 29. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11.23, if I could get you to turn there.
1 Corinthians 11 and 23. Paul is talking. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. In Matthew 26 and, and 28, he, he talks, uh, Jesus is talking about the cup. And he, he also says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Continue on. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. This is a memorial. This is a a time where we remember just what an awesome thing it was that Jesus died for our sins and what an awesome thing it is to be able to have life on this earth. Communion is not a time to feed ourselves, but it's a time of remembrance for Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the hill called Calvary.